This is the Ed Surge podcast for the week of May 25th to May 29th. All over America, from the New York Times to the Helen Air of Helena, Montana, to Ed Surge, the media is reporting on the disaster of Common Core testing and the increasing rate of student opt-outs. But we found a beacon of hope, <laughs> a bastion of light in the darkness of federally mandated standardized testing. And he's sitting in his office in Vermont. Welcome to the Ed Surge podcast for the week of May 25th to May 29th. I'm Charlie Locke. And I'm Michael Winters. We'll speak to our bastion of light in a minute, but first, our lightning roundup of this week's news. Let's get started. Making and creating have been essential parts of being a kid since long before coding languages or even popsicle sticks. But tech tools and the internet offer a whole new world of resources to help people learn by making. At EdSurge, we've put together offerings in our Maker Guide, including articles by educators in the field, background on project-based learning, and ideas for how to bring makerspaces to low-income communities. Michael, what's one of your favorite articles? Yeah, Charlie, I I loved this week's Maker Guide. Uh, And in, in particular, I really liked Zach Klein's piece, How Minecraft and Duct Tape Wallets Prepare Our Kids for Jobs That Don't Exist Yet. Zach is the CEO of DIY.org, which offers badges from skills like beekeeping to woodworking to being a Yeti. In his article, he argues that encouraging kids to pursue their interests, even if they seem silly or unproductive to adults like us, is actually really important. You know, I thought it was especially interesting how Zach explains this in the context of job preparation. He brings up how 65% of kindergartners this year will end up with jobs that don't exist yet. And Zach proposes that encouraging curiosity, whether that's about beekeeping or even about being a Yeti, is what prepares these kids to be engaged workers in the future. And, you know, that reminds me, too, of an idea that Dale Doherty spoke about in his Maker Guide Q&A with EdSurge. Dale is the creator of the Maker Fair and the CEO of Maker Media. And in response to a question about the role of making in the job hiring process, Dale admitted that he hates the idea of making as a contrived way of demonstrating an ability to be a creative problem solver. He says, if you are trying to identify makers, ask them to tell you what they do because they are already making. If they don't have a project, I'd worry about them. Seems like Dale and Zach have similar visions for creative, engaged workers. Sounds like a good vision to me. And full disclosure, Dale is an investor in EdSurge. I also loved Angie Chow's article on the importance of all-girl makerspaces. Angie is the director of the Maker Lab at Castileja School, an all-girls school in Palo Alto, California. In her article, she writes about seeing her students engaged and vocal about their curiosity in STEM, compared to young women who often feel intimidated by traditionally male tools like Legos in the classroom. Moving down the guide, Sylvia Martinez, co-author of Invent to Learn, Making, Tinkering, and Engineering in the Classroom, also brought up some great points about creating a makerspace that's inclusive and inviting for all learners. She highlights the importance of asking students about what interests them, whether that's hip-hop or fashion design, and finding ways to encourage making from that starting point. And if you're looking to create a makerspace in your home or classroom or summer camp but aren't sure where to start in terms of supplies, you can start out just looking in your kitchen cupboard or in the arts and crafts drawer at school. We've got a full list of different items that you can find over at EdSearch, including household items like cardboard tubes or glue or a needle and thread, or things that you can get at your local hardware store, like PVC pipe or safety goggles. 
and also some specialty items for making, like a 3D printer or a Raspberry Pi. And finally, time for this week's kachings. San Francisco and New South Wales, Australia-based Edrolo, which helps students prepare for the SATs, has raised $2 million from investors including Roger Allen, Blackbird Ventures, and Airtree Ventures. San Diego, California-based Boost Academy, which connects middle and high school students with math tutors, raised $600,000 in a seed round led by Tom Late. And Houston, Texas-based Reasoning Mind took home $100,000 as this year's winner of the Deloitte Right Step Innovation Prize. Congratulations to all of those companies and to everyone else who raised money this week. Okay, so now on to our deep dive. Like we mentioned at the top of the show, we've just finished up standardized testing season, and we're hearing bad news about testing from all over the U.S. I mean, really all over the U.S. Uh, This headline came from the New York Times. Opt-out becomes anti-test rallying cry in New York State. Or another one from the New York Times. Common core testing problems continue with money at stake. Or this one from the Billings Gazette. Amid problems, state lets school districts opt out of testing. Or this one from EdSurge. States report significant hurdles with common core testing. Uh, okay, that's, that's plenty. I think we all get the idea. I'm getting a little scared. Yeah, but I mean, the point is that we could go on and on. Common core testing has been widely reported as a nightmare. And you can definitely argue that the doomsday reporting is accurate. In some places, testing really has been a nightmare. Take that last headline, which EdSurge published back on April 20th. We documented the temporary stoppage of testing in Nevada, Montana, and North Dakota after the computer system running their testing crashed. That first New York Times headline discussed the growing momentum of the opt-out movement in the Empire State. To quote the article, A small, if vocal, movement urging a rejection of standardized exams took off this year, maturing from scattered displays of disobedience into a widespread rebuke of state testing policies. Oh, that sounds bad. Yeah, it is. (laughs) And it's pretty clear that testing this year has put a great deal of strain on all parts of the education system, from parents to teachers to students. Right. So we started wondering over at EdSurge, were there any positive headlines to go along with all this negativity? Where are the articles with headlines like, smarter balanced testing goes well, school continues as normal? Or maybe a headline like, just like a walk in the park. Get it? Michael, I think we're going to have to work on your headline brainstorming. Uh, Okay. (laughs) But we have been wondering where these positive examples are, and if they're there to be found, what can we learn from their case studies? So we went looking, and we found one. Yeah, I think the noteworthiness was that it wasn't noteworthy. I think people just took the test and now we're finishing off the year and that's that. That is the voice of Ned Kirsch. My name is Ned Kirsch. I'm superintendent of schools of Franklin West Supervisory Union. Uh, We're a school district in Vermont that's halfway between Burlington and the border of Canada. So it's rural, but we're also 20 minutes from Vermont's biggest city. So it's, it's a mixture of rural suburban and what Vermont calls urban. And we have about 1,700 students pre-K through 12, which again in Vermont is one of the the top third size school systems. Um, In the rest of the country, it's probably the size of a high school. Um, So it's that that's who I am and I've been superintendent here for five years. We've talked to Ned before. He was one of the writers for our 50 States project, where he wrote about the EdTech transition in his rural district. We initially got in touch with him because we expected him to have some strong opinions on testing. 
but we were struck by just how different his experiences were from everything else we were hearing. We started by asking Ned what the mood around his district was prior to the start of testing. You know, it was something that everyone was dreading. Everyone was hearing all the horror stories, which I think just grew and grew and grew in, in the story part of it. And besides the apprehension caused by the media, there were some big worries that their hardware wouldn't last through the whole testing period. We were very nervous at the start of it um, because we use iPads in our schools. And the app was a little unstable at first. Um, when iOS was updated, the app wouldn't meet the updates for the iOS. So that caused us some consternation at first, like, oh my God, if they update the iOS in the middle of the testing, we're going to have to then go download the app. And this gets to what I think is a big source of the anxiety and the negativity around these exams. There's so much that has to go right in testing that teachers and administrators feel like they don't have any control over. Definitely. It's one thing to stress about whether all of your students have enough number two pencils for the SAT, and another thing entirely to worry about whether Apple will update their software on a given day. So, so far, the interview is going as expected, in line with everything we've heard about testing. But now things start to change. We asked Ned, okay, after all these expectations, how did the exams actually go? Well, there were no nightmares. You know, there were the horror stories that we heard, I think were just stories. I, I haven't heard anyone in Vermont, at least, having big issues with the actual assessment. Um, we had a couple of things freeze up, but no widespread panic, no widespread failure of the system. Whoa, that's so different. I know. <laughs> so what, what, what is the secret? Why is Franklin West's supervisory union, Ned's district in Vermont, succeeding where so many others have had tons of challenges? Well, that's the interesting part. There are a couple of layers of why these tests went so well. First, there are a number of factors that a district anywhere could theoretically control. Ned's team, for example, set up tech trauma centers in all of the schools. We set up a system where our digital learning specialists in each of our school kind of took the lead um, and made sure that the testing went off every day. It wasn't just in the hands of principals. I think that was good and bad. Uh, I think it was good because principals have a lot to do in trying to troubleshooting technology in the middle of an assessment probably went to work as well. So we set up kind of trauma teams in each school um, to make sure that during the testing windows, there's people available, there's backup technology available, and there's someone to fix anything should something happen, which nothing really happened. And second, and probably more importantly, Ned pointed out that his district has been really focused on technology for students for a while. We weren't at all concerned about our students' ability to take a test because they live in a digital culture every day. Um, so, you know, that's a concern for other schools I know too in Vermont and probably across the country. If you don't live in a digital culture with your students and then all of a sudden go to a digital assessment, you know, what is the test really testing? Is it testing their digital ability or is it testing what they actually know? So if your students are using tech in the classroom every day, they'll be much more confident when taking a digital exam. That completely makes sense. Michael, you're making a face. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, that sort of seems like an unfair advantage, doesn't it? We're saying that Ned's district did well at the tests because his students are already used to technology. I just, I just don't know how that can help any of the other districts around the country that have had issues. 
okay, that's that's a fair point. It's hard to make a quick change and suddenly have your whole school or district be tech-focused. And Ned does have the luxury of working for a relatively small district. But we're looking for bright spots in testing, and this district is definitely one of them. As he wrote about in his 50 States article, Ned actually has a philosophy on technology in schools that other districts can learn from. We've put a focus on our students' digital education. You know, we live in the digital age. We look at our, our school through the lens of student-centered learning, uh, through flexible learning environments, through student-centered leadership and community engagement. We try to do that in a world that we live in now. I think that we have put a focus on purchasing tools that our kids need to go out into the world and survive. It's not the same world anymore. We all know that. And we've been doing it for five years. So if you're focusing on your students' digital education, then the exams can go well for you too. Well, yes and no. The digital focus is only part of the equation. As a district administrator, you can only do so much. The other half of all of this is the district environment. And in Vermont, at least according to Ned, they're lucky that the state chose not to take race to the top money from the federal government. Right, because if you, if you don't take race to the top money, then you don't have to tie teacher evaluations to the results of the tests. Exactly. You know, when you're tying it to your evaluation, and your evaluation is whether or not you're hired or whether you get a raise or whatever it is, that makes it high stakes for the teacher, and that translates right away to high stakes for students. And it takes it away from the actual assessment. I'm thankful that when they were dangling that money out to all the states that our agency of education, our state board of education, our superintendents association, were all on the same page saying, we don't want that money. You know, we don't need that money to, for this testing. We'll figure out another, and we got a waiver, you know, because otherwise we'd be in the same position as everyone else, you know. And a student's assessment and how they do and how they're growing as an individual Every teacher they have, their, where they come from, where they live, that all plays into it. And if you're just tying it to one person's time teaching them for that year, that skewers the whole idea of the test. And I think that's where the opt-outs are coming from, you know, because parents can see that it's stressing the whole system, including their kids, and who wants to be involved in that. So it seems to me like Ned was able to succeed partially through the hard work of putting his districts and students in a position to succeed, and partly through luck. He happens to live in a state where the environment was right for him to be able to succeed. Okay, so that's good news for teachers and administrators in other states that declined to take race to the top funds, but not so good for everyone else. I guess you can only control so much, and you have to do as much with that control as you can. Yeah, I mean, that's a frustrating answer to come to at the end of the conversation, but I I think it's the right one, and standardized testing isn't something that we can tie up neatly. Ned did offer some concrete advice on what other districts can do to help their students feel more comfortable in the digital age and therefore succeed at testing, namely go one-to-one. Ned, if a superintendent of a school in Vermont or across the country came to you and asked for advice on how to improve the testing experience for schools that aren't one-to-one, what would you say? Uh, you should try to get one-to-one for your students. Um, I mean, I'm not an advocate of BYOD at all. I know a lot of school systems get it one-to-one that way. Um, but, you know, we never really had students bring their own textbooks. We've never had students bring, I mean, schools should supply the resources that students need to be successful. 
And now, in the world we live in now, that's you need technology, whether it's a Chromebook or an iPad or something in between. That has to be part of what you fund in your school. It has to be part of your system. We're a rural district. We're not a tremendously rich district. We're one of the lowest spending per pupil districts in Vermont. Um, people often ask me, you know, did you, did you get a grant for all this tech? We didn't get any grants. We made this part of our regular budget. We communicated that with our school boards. The school boards understood that and communicated that with their communities. And that's been part of our budget process. It's not an extra anymore. We did have to make some cuts in other areas, though. Um, it couldn't be business as usual and then layer on top iPads and bandwidth in a wide area network and a learning management system. That has to be how we operate. And that's really what we've tried to do for the last five years. You know, we can't just do things like we've always done them. It's just, it's impossible now. School changes so slowly and society changes incredibly quickly, you know, and we're dinosaurs. We have to change that. To hear more of Ned's ideas about going one-to-one -one in your district without lavish outside funding, check out his EdSearch 50 States article, Missions and Network Building, How One Rural District is Making the EdTech Transition. Okay, that's it for today. A huge thank you to Ned Kirsch for agreeing to be on the podcast. And again, if you're trying to read more about Ned and his district, we'll have links to the articles that he's written for us and to his website on the article about this podcast. And attention entrepreneurs. We talked about this last week, but if you or someone you know is waiting for your index profile to be put up or waiting for your already existing index profile to be updated, contribute to our Tilt project. We're making slow but steady progress toward our goal, and we need you to help complete the profiles on the index. Head over to bit.ly slash edsurge-tilt for all of the details and to contribute. And we'll put that link on the podcast page as well. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening and for reading EdSurge. If Park or Smarter Balanced or your state standardized testing went well for you or if it went terribly for you and you want to share your story, we want to hear it. Shoot us an email at feedback at edsurge.com. I know that sounds like a garbage email, but it's not. They all go directly to Michael. All to me. Send them my <laughs> way, guys. Okay, that's it for today. I'm Charlie Locke. And I'm Michael Winters. We'll see you next week. This is the Ed Surge Podcast.